0: You're listening to The Omni Show. Get to know the people and stories behind the Omni Group's award-winning productivity apps for Mac and iOS. Music. I'm your host, Brent Simmons. In the studio with me today is Jim Korea, OmniFocus developer. Say hello, Jim. Hello, Jim. So start off, we have a listener question from Evan McNulty. Of course, he's an omni-employed, but he is also a listener. And he asks, are you right? Yeah,
1: you say he's a listener, but (laughs) I'm going to answer under protest. I'm going to say that I am right more often than I am wrong. Okay. How about we go with that?
0: That sounds good. So the answer is bet on Jim. It'll work out slightly more often than not. (laughs) All right. So you're you an OmniFocus developer, and i um, are the OmniFocus lead developer, technically?
1: Yeah, I'm technically the lead engineer for OmniFocus. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So what have you been working on this summer and fall since WWDC?
1: So this summer and fall, the two major things I've been working on, it's all been stuff for iOS 13, but I've been working on dark mode for OmniFocus, as well as multiple Windows support for OmniFocus.
0: So uh, did you start with dark mode? That seems maybe the easier of the two. I don't know.
1: Yeah, dark mode has been done. in. if you could see me, there were little air quotes around done um, for quite a long time. Dark mode was interesting because OmniFocus has had dark mode for many years now. I forget exactly how long. Um, So we did dark mode before the OS supported such a thing. And now that the OS supports it, it was actually nice to be able to go in and rip out a bunch of our custom code. So now we do it the OS way. We've tuned the colors so that we fit fit in with the OS better
0: and Mm. give people a look that they've been asking for for quite a while. So the look actually matches like the OS preferred semantic colors. We're using all
1: the Apple semantic colors. So Mm. the background colors in OmniFocus will match that in mail, for example.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So Apple's already gone ahead and designed all this in a sense, and we're just picking that up. That's cool. These days, what do you use? Uh, asset catalogs for colors? And there's a, like a whole infrastructure for
1: this. Yeah, right? there there is. Um, since we did dark mode years ago, we had our own theme file format, which was essentially a property list with a bunch of metrics and colors in it. So one of the first things I did this summer was write a little bit of code, which converted that all the colors in that property list into asset catalogs. Mm-hmm. And then went through and deleted all the colors we didn't need anymore because we're using the Apple semantic colors.
0: That's cool. So you got to, the chance to delete a bunch of stuff Yeah, there, is always nice. There's
1: a bunch of custom code that just no longer exists anymore. And
0: mm. while it was
1: code that many people were proud of, I'm also happy to delete it.
0: <laughs> that's true. Well, that's, you know, the mark of a professional engineer is that that person will delete even their own code, even if it's good, you know, if it's time. So how about the um, automatic switching? Was that any difficult there? Person changes their preference or has auto-switching turned on or whatever?
1: No, if you're building a brand new application and you have all stock UI elements, it's essentially free. If you have custom UI elements, you just have to make sure you go in and respond to the trait collection changes and make sure you update your colors. And even then, depending on how you've built your stuff, it's sort of rare that you actually have to do work. Mm. Um, Most of it happens for free if you're using asset catalogs and the modern infrastructure.
0: My personal iOS experience basically stops with iOS six, so I don't even know what trait collections are, (laughs) other than generally. So, OmniFocus may be out by the time people are listening to this. I bet it is. It's at least in test flight, so you can see our new dark mode. So the other thing was multi windows, multiple windows for, and that's just an iPad thing, right? That is
1: just an iPad thing, and that was a much
0: bigger lift than dark mode.
1: That has consumed. Most of the rest of my summer, as well as my colleague Reed Summer.
0: Reed, who was on the show recently. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why was this a big lift? What, what had to happen here?
1: So OmniFocus, for iPad, it's hard to believe that the code base is almost 10 years old already. And in those 10 years, there almost every corner of the app assumed that there was only going to be one instance of the UI. Mm-hmm. It's pretty straightforward to make it work to support multiple windows, but there was a lot of code to touch. There was most corners of the application that were not underlying model
0: and infrastructure code were touched for this release. Hmm. Interesting. So of course the model, which is shared with the Mac is prepared for this because the Mac can have multiple windows, but so is user interface layer and related controllers. So tell me about the quick entry window. We talked about that a little in the pre-interview.
1: Yeah, quick entry was sort of interesting because we got away with sort of a shortcut before because we knew that there was only one possible at a time and that you couldn't be editing anything else anywhere in the application while the quick entry window was up. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you add a second window, that's no longer true.
0: And that's Uh a very big thing to be different. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So fortunately, we had the underpinnings of what we needed to solve this problem, which was the code that drove quick entry on macOS. So one of the things I did this summer was move that code out of the Mac application down into the model layer, where arguably it should have been all along, Mm -hmm. extended it to meet the needs of OmniFocus iOS, and now that drives quick entry in both applications.
0: That makes sense. I I imagine this entire project of multiple windows has been the case of you think it's this amount of work, and then as you dive, you're finding more and more corners and so on.
1: Exactly. Early in the summer, we sat down and we tried to scope the work Largely so that our product manager could have a sense of, you know, what is it that Reed and I are doing? Mm. And we had a a vague idea of what we needed to do. And then as we started to peel back layers of the onion, we're like, oh, we forgot about this thing, which also needs to be touched and Mm. this thing too. And in fact, before I came up here today, I was fixing what I hope is the last one of those surprises. Getting close.
0: (laughs) It's an interesting subject because um, you could always have imagined that multiple windows would come to the iPad, but you'd never know exactly how that would work or whatever. So what about preparing in advance for for a feature like that? Do you do that? You know, because the work could have been done five years ago, Mm -hmm. for instance.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this rumor has been floating around for a while that iPad should have multiple windows. So when do you do that work versus other priorities in customer-facing features that you want to ship today? Mm -hmm. And the other problem is, is what if you guess wrong and you've done all this work and it's not a really great match for what Apple eventually shipped. Mm, Sure. Now that said, there are lots of places in the application where we should have not been using a global reference to an editing context or to Mm. the current outline controller. We could have done better there, but software is not
0: always clean. Sometimes it's messy, but it, it ships and it works. Yeah. Right. And that, that's, that's the key thing. You ship what you need to ship when it's time. Yeah, and likewise, there, I'm sure, have been similar rumors on Macs for years about different things. And, like, you could have prepared for all of them and been wrong.
1: Yeah, there was one or, in particular I remember, and this, this is an old rumor that was pretty well known, so I don't feel bad about perpetuating it at this point because it, it's certainly dead. The rumor was we are going to have floating menus or tear-off menus. And when I was working on BB Edit, this was, I don't know, a decade and a half ago. The way Edit enabled and disabled menu items before the menu dropped down, it was not a good match for if menus would be floating invisible on the screen all the time. So I went through and I turned BBEdit's menu validation code inside out, and the result was much cleaner and nicer and was probably worth doing, but the floating menu feature never came.
0: <laughs> so I imagine, uh, speaking of cleaner and nicer, after all this work, OmniFocus is code is cleaner and nicer a bit too, as a result of adapting to multiple windows.
1: It is. um, were pretty happy with the architecture that we came up for OmniFocus 3 for iOS and this cleans it up a fair bit. It doesn't change it drastically, it just cleans up the loose edges where people were referring to a single instance of the UI and now it's all parameterized, so Mm -hmm. clearly we can have three OmniFocus windows on your iPad if that's what you need.
0: Sure, That's cool. Those big iPads, yeah, why not? Kind of nice to be able to see three different perspectives or Mm -hmm. whatever. I imagine there are just a number of bug fixes, iOS 13 compatibility issues. Yeah, there's always bug fixes and performance
1: tweaks that we're working on. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also another big feature we've been working on, shortcuts and automation. Mm. So Omni Automation for OmniFocus is still in beta, but what will ship with the iOS 13 release of OmniFocus is a bunch
0: of shortcuts. So shortcuts have been beefed up in iOS 13, right?
1: They have. If any of you remember Automator from old Mac OS, it's sort
0: of its kindred spirit. Mm. We have parameters now, right? And we didn't used to.
1: We have parameters and we have a a nice shortcut that lets you do an advanced query of your tasks and then you can process your tasks that way. I think it's going to be great for sharing tasks with your teammate for generating a report, Mm -hmm. various things like
0: that. Okay. Can you query on basically the same kind of things we can create perspectives out of? Or what do those parameters look like?
1: The rules are slightly different than the perspective rules. They're quite flexible. And I'm embarrassed to say I don't have all of them in my head because I have not been doing that work. My colleague Andrew has been doing the work. Andrew
0: Burkholder, who uh, hopefully we can get him on the show and talk about shortcuts and automation yeah. one of these days.
1: Yeah, we can. we can see.
0: We'll we'll drag him up, Pierre. He's on the third floor, listeners. We're recording on the fourth floor. So we'll go downstairs, throw him in the elevator, bring him up. <laughs> so you've been here for about ten years. So have you been on omnifocus the whole time?
1: I have. I guess when I arrived, it was unclear exactly what I was gonna work on. And I did a quick prototype, I think, for Omni Outliner for iPad. Mm. And then we decided that I should work on OmniFocus. Okay. And that was just fine with me because I love OmniFocus.
0: Yeah. How did you come to Omni in the first place? You're from New England, so this is a bit of a hike.
1: I am from New England. This story is sort of not terribly interesting. I had been at Bare Bones more than a decade and had essentially been working on the same problems for more than a decade and was ready to try something new and take up some new challenges. Mm-hmm. Everything aligned so that it made sense for my family to pick up and move from New England out to Seattle. So we did.
0: That's, um, that's not that interesting. No. <laughs> I'm glad we got that out of the way. Wasn't it Craigslist that had, though? No, it wasn't a Craigslist. I had known Tim for years through WWDC and other conferences. Sure, yeah. Well, you and I have known each other, at least online, for I Dang, think 90s sometime probably. I think I was an undergraduate when we knew each other. Yeah, okay. Phew. And now I'm an old man. Yeah. Listeners, you'll have to watch. We'll post photos of Jim. You you'll be able to see that. Yeah, he's an old man. <laughs> so as you say, before Omni, you were at bare bones. You worked on all the apps, BB Edit, Yojimbo. Yeah, I, worked,
1: I worked on everything we shipped.
0: Mailsmith too.
1: BB Edit, your Jimbo and Mailsmith mm. over time. I think over time. I probably did less work on Mailsmith than anything.
0: That was always kind of Rich's baby in a way, it seems like.
1: It was. And I was also um, the domain expert on several things in BBEdit, so it made sense for me to work on BBEdit. Mm -hmm. I did come over to the Mailsmith project for a while to work on the application framework. And a lot of those pieces ended up in the modern version of BBEdit that became the one that we shipped on Mac
0: OS X eventually. Oh, okay. That was a Carbon app. When it shipped on OS. Yeah, it was
1: a carbon app on OS 10. Before that, it was an HI Toolbox app because carbon didn't
0: exist. Right, right. And carbon really is HI Toolbox evolved. Yes. Right. I helped carbonize exactly one app in my life and immediately switched over to writing in Cocoa and was very happy. Now, did you start your Jimbo? It's got the name Jim in it.
1: No. What's so, story it's, there? it's actually named after a Kurosawa film. Okay. Um, the product originated out of an idea that my colleague Steve had for years about an app he wanted to build, and he's a big fan of the film. Oh, okay. It was actually the second proposed name for the application. We had a great name. and Nova? No, see, as as lawyers often are, they're not fun. Mm. And they said, no, you can't name it that. That's going to cause you all kinds of grief. So your Jimbo was.
0: Can you say what that name was, or are you still... uh Lawyer's going to come after you. I probably shouldn't say. Okay. <laughs> after the show, I'm going to ask you again. <laughs> I'll have to make sure that the tape is off. <laughs> How'd you get into computer programming in the first place? Were you one of those kids who had an Apple II Plus at home and, and your parents are computer programmers? or?
1: No, not at all. I ended up with a TI-99-4A, and I forget how old I was. I was fairly young. And it arrived one Christmas by way of my grandmother. And I have no idea how this happened because hmm. she was not a computer person
0: hmm.
1: at all. And in those days, when you got a computer and you turned it on, it didn't do anything. So you learned how to program it in basic. Right. Yeah. And that's what I did. And it, when I had the computer, I didn't have a floppy disk drive. I didn't have a tape drive. So every time you turned it on, it was a clean slate and you wrote something new.
0: Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. Oh God, and if the electricity were to go out, like whatever, start over. Yeah,
1: yeah. I get really good at hunt and peck typing and eventually in high school, I decided to take a typing class and man, it was painful to unlearn those habits. Mm.
0: Yeah, I never took a typing class. We had them when I was in school, of course. Um, and my typing style still derived from age 12 typing on an Apple II Plus, It's not correct. Mm-hmm. So in high school, were you, did they have computers? Were you part of that? The whole scene, the kids and them, math lab? with
1: the- Yeah, I was I was heavy into math and science, and we did have computer programming classes in high school, and we had a computer team, and our school was actually pretty good, and we'd go to the various competitions. What's interesting, though, is that at that time, so I guess I could date myself and say that I graduated in 91, I believe? Kay. So yeah, I'm so old, I can't remember the year I graduated. <laughs> in. And my guidance counselors at the time gave me an interesting bit of advice. They're like, I know you're good at this, and that you find it interesting, but it doesn't look like a place where there's going to be a lot of growth. So you might want to look into other fields to go to school for.
0: No, no growth in computer science. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, and or nearly... that there was going to be a glut of people.
0: Oh, okay. Too many. Yeah.
1: So I did what you do when your guidance counselor tells you not to go to school for computer science. Is I went and got
0: a degree in physics. Mm, naturally. So where'd you go to? Where'd you go to school?
1: I went to UMass on one of the small campuses, the Dartmouth campus. What was interesting about being a physics student there was it was a really small department. My graduating class was three people. Wow. Jeez. But for a school that was largely undergraduate, the physics department was heavily research based. Hmm. Um, we had a professor doing solid state research, and we had two groups doing high energy physics at Brookhaven National Lab. Wow. I was lucky enough to, as an undergraduate, go with one of the groups to the lab and work with them for the summer Mm. when they were running their high-energy experiment looking for exotic mesons.
0: That just sounds really, really cool.
1: It does. I mean, exotic mesons makes it maybe sound more interesting than it was, but it was still a great experience. Still,
0: I mean, yeah. Science is dry in the way science is dry, and that's fine. But yeah, exotic mesons.
1: The interesting bit about that summer was that It happened to be the summer that funding in this country was cut for the Superconducting Super Collider. Ah, yeah. Not exactly a good time to be a physics student who maybe is deciding whether or not they're
0: going to be interested in high-energy physics. Sure. So now there's a glut of high-energy physicists and not enough um, tools.
1: There is. And apparently some of them went on to create
0: financial instruments that we probably shouldn't (laughs) talk about. (laughs) Yeah, that's a whole other topic. Good Lord. Our friend Luke Adamson could discuss that.
1: Yeah. So I got back to campus that fall
0: and said, okay, well,
1: clearly high energy physics is not a thing. And it turned out that the math department just got a large grant from the National Science Foundation to do innovation in teaching. And some of it was going to be software based. We're going to teach kids how to teach kids calculus mm. in non traditional ways that were more experience based. Okay. So I worked for them for. Two years while I finished my undergraduate degree, and since I didn't know what I was going to be when I grew up, I stuck on and worked another two years with them while I took master's physics classes.
0: Oh, okay. Now you have a foot in both places, doing physics and doing programming. Yeah, and it
1: turned out that the software we were writing on that grant was all software that ran on a Mac. Oh,
0: ah, okay. And was that really your first exposure to Macs?
1: My first exposure to Macs was, I think, when I was a freshman in college. hmm and I started doing hypercard work. Oh, cool. And for the same grant, a lot of the prototypes are in hypercard. And then we get to the point where we're like, okay, now it's time to write real software. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'll learn C. Right. This will be an adventure. Was PowerPlant out by that time or were you? PowerPlant on? was out. Um, our app was actually built in PowerPlant. Mm-hmm. And we used something called the animation class library to do
0: our virtual worlds. Okay. Did you ever have to have any of those really um, lousy jobs? Like me, I was a dishwasher, busser that kind of thing. You ever Oh, do retail, restaurant work, you know, to get by as a high school kid? Or I
1: ended kid? doing retail, commission sales in Sears, but I started doing dishes. I stocked the shelves. I did the dairy cooler. I took the trash out for a small convenience store, um, meat market near my house. And that was definitely a character building job. I recommend everybody have at least one of those.
0: Yeah, if not several. I had a ton. Apparently, I needed a lot of building. <laughs> so, but back to your writing software for the math department. And at some point, you're, you're out of there. You're going to join the real world. Um, how do you get from that point to bare bones?
1: Well, I was finishing up my master's coursework and still unsure what I was going to be when I grew up. And the professor I worked with was saying, well, you should be like me and go into a PhD program for math and science ed.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And the whole time while I was writing Mac software, I was a BBEdit user and a Frontier user, which is how I knew you. Sure, And I would send rich bug reports about BBEdit. And then at some point he made me a beta site. And then at some point he invited me up for lunch because he decided that I'd reported enough bugs that he should just offer me a job so that he (laughs) could make them my problem.
0: Uh That seems fair. And so you got a job and stayed 10 years there. Huh?
1: Yeah. yeah. I think it was 13 by the time I 13? finally left.
0: Wow. Uh, how big was the company around those uh, So Steve was there too, Patrick, Rich. The, the
1: company has always fluctuated in size over the years, mm. but it's always been fairly small. It's sometimes I think that I didn't have enough fingers to count the people using two hands,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: usually around that size. Yeah.
0: All right. Stay in touch with Rich? Oh, yeah. I talk to Rich several times a week these days. Someone's got to keep him on an even keel. After all, I guess that's your job. Yeah, I don't know how I get stuck with it, but <laughs> yeah, we're in touch all the time. Oh, that's great. So when you're not making software happen, you're a runner.
1: I am, which was sort of unexpected. I think back to my days in New England where the idea of running was not all that interesting because it's, it's hot, it's humid, it's cold. Yeah. And then I came out to Seattle and the weather here is temperate most of the year. And I Uh, you can
0: run in literally every single month. I mean, yeah.
1: Yeah, and most of the year I run in shorts. Mm -hmm. Not everybody does, but (laughs) Mm. I do. It's sort of interesting how bundle
0: up like crazy. I wear long, you know, running pants, even in like July.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I can tell that I'm getting older now because my hands get cold when I run. Ah, okay. It was sort of surprising to fall into running because i was I was definitely a pro couch potato, and then a friend of ours was diagnosed with lymphoma. Somebody suggested that as a show of support, we all run with team and training, okay so we did, and running just sort of stuck mm-hmm. so it was a surprise, but a nice one
0: yeah what do
1: you like about it what
0: What does it bring to you
1: It's a pretty efficient way to stay healthy because. While it takes a lot of activation energy to get up and actually get out there and do it, you don't have to run for very long to get a lot of cardio benefit from it. Mm, It's also a good time to think. Lots of bugs are actually solved while I'm out running, not when I'm sitting in front Mm. of the computer.
0: Mm. When you run, do you have a distance you generally go for or do you, you tend to mix it up?
1: Well, these days I've kind of fallen off the wagon and I just do short runs a couple times a week. But for a long time, I would do anywhere. A short run would be three. A long run would be 10. Mm, mm-hmm. it, de- it depends. I used to train a lot for half marathons, and these days,
0: not so much. Mm. We have done a marathon.
1: I've done one marathon. Mm. It didn't go as well as I would hope. So that means that rather than totally writing off the idea of running
0: marathons, I'm going to have to do another one. Uh-huh, right. Is it just a matter of training enough or training in the right way to hopefully have it go better the next time?
1: I think so. The marathon is an interesting distance because it's beyond the distance that most people can pack enough luggage in for. Mm -hmm. So you need to overcome that and deal with nutrition on the run. Mm. I love the half marathon distance because you get up, you run a half marathon, you're done, and then you go about your day.
0: I've not done a half marathon, but I do. And I'm running that, yeah, I think I could do that. I wouldn't be like wiped out for a month or something. But a marathon, somewhere along mile 20 or something or mile 17, it must just get brutal.
1: Yeah. For me, it was about mile 18 where I'm like, oh, this is not great. And it's funny, the perspective you have at that point, because I'm like, "Eh, it's only seven more miles. How bad Mm, could it be? Right. Pretty bad. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out, yes. Yeah. The other valuable lesson I learned about the marathon is that when your friend says to you, oh, you should sign up for this marathon and run it with me, it's a flat course. Don't believe them.
0: Don't believe which part? Don't believe that it's flat? Yes. Okay. Because this was Kurt, wasn't it? It was Kurt. Yeah.
1: And it turns out that it was like a 2,500
0: feet elevation course. Oh, geez. To Kurt, that's flat. But yeah, to regular humans.
1: I mean, to be fair, I think maybe in his mind, she remembered it being flat because it was all a blur, but it's definitely not flat.
0: Yeah. So you also take care of Rosie. The dog. Busy. Yeah,
1: Rosie is a, a good, busy dog.
0: Mm-hmm. Busy by temperament. By yeah, she's freedom. a border
1: collie mix. So she she's a great dog. She loves to come to the office and just chill. But whenever she notices that I'm not busy, it's
0: time to pay attention to the dog. Mm-hmm. Right. She kind of demands that a little bit, huh?
1: Yeah, it's funny too that if somebody comes to my office to work on a problem and she notices that we're both idle and my colleague Andrew thinks, what she's actually picking up on is the fans running because Xcode is doing a big build. Uh-huh. She wanders over and says, you guys aren't busy. You should pat the dog.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that's what big build time is for. Yeah. yeah, That's cute. So when you're at home, do you get to walk her a bunch or she just like to hang out? or
1: A little bit of everything. Sometimes she'll... Um, put herself to bed early which is always surprising hmm. she'll like look up at the stairs and look at me and look at the stairs and I'm like you can go to bed I'm not going to bed <laughs> um, but often she'll get bored and she'll do what I call the rosy dance where she just crouches in front of you and she clearly wants to play tug or go for a walk uh-huh. right. or she just wants me to move over to the couch so that she can jump up and sit with me
0: well that's nice I, I picture the two of you you know watching television you're petting the dog pretty good night we're just going to stop there with the image of you petting your dog and watching TV on the couch. Thanks, Jim. How can people find you on the web?
1: On the web, um, you can probably find me on Twitter. I don't post a ton these days, um, but I'm at Jim Korea on Twitter.
0: Okay, that'll be in the show notes too. Because listener, you probably can't spell Korea. Um, you can just oh, they can link. probably spell it like five different ways. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. I'd also like to thank our intrepid producer, Mark Bosco. Say hello, Mark.
1: Hello, Mark.
0: And especially, I want to thank you for listening. Thank you. Music.